this week we come to kind of the last topic in our Outlaster series, at least is what we've talked about, and it's really this topic of how much we will pass on of our faith. And so we've titled it Outlasting Wealth, but as, lest you think it's all about money, the key question really is how much will you pass on, and there's a great case study to start this. It begins with this person named Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. He was born in 1703, that's a long time ago, in Connecticut. He attended Yale University at age 13. So he sounds pretty smart. Uh, he went on to later serve as the president of the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, no small feat. And when he was just 20 years old, he wrote a list of personal resolutions. I don't know if anyone would want to pull out their list of personal resolutions from when they were 20. Because I had a few and they were not things I'd like to share with you today. <laughs> but, but he did, and on one of those, he said, ask myself every day, at the end of every day, is there any way possible in any respect that I could have done better today? That was one of his personal resolutions at 20 years old, and in no other area was his resolve greater than to be an impact to the kids that he had, to be to this legacy of his father. Now, he and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. And in addition to his extensive schedule, travels, writing, reading, administrative meetings, he always made time for his children, even if that meant rising as early as 4.30 in the morning. In fact, he was so committed to investing in his children that if he was traveling out of town and missed an hour a day was his goal, an hour a day to spend and invest with his children, that if he missed that, he would make it up when he got back from his trips. So numerous books have been written on Edward's life, on his legacy, on his influence in history and his professional legacy, but one of the scholars from, I believe, Princeton, yep, B.B. Warfield is his name, he actually charted the descendants of Jonathan Edwards found 1,394 of them, and, and of those known descendants, listen to this. 13 were college presidents, 13 college presidents, 60 were college professors, or 65 were college professors, 100 were lawyers, 30s were, were judges, 60s were phys- 60 were physicians, 75 were naval or army officers, 100 were pastors, 60 were authors of prominence. Not just authors, authors of prominence. I thought that was pretty. (laughs) Three United States senators, 80 public servants, including governors, ministers of foreign countries, and one vice president of the United States. That is an incredible legacy. Now, some psychologists call what happened with Jonathan Edwards an example of a five-generation rule. So what they say is how a parent raises a child, meaning the love they give them, meaning the values that they instill, the emotional environment that they create, the education they provide, they don't just influence that child, they actually influence the next four generations of children. That's the five-generation rule. And unfortunately, it works both ways. See, what B.B. Warfield did is he found a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, this guy named Max Jukes. And as an adult, Jukes had a drinking problem that often kept him from holding a steady job. He would be gone for days and often return home drunk. And, and while investing in the alcohol, what he didn't invest in is his children. 
this time of love, influence, and care that he could have. And so B.B. Warfield also tracked his descendants. He found um, 540 of them. And what he found out is that of those 540, 310 died as bankrupt beggars. A hundred were also drunkards. More than 150 of them were criminals, including seven murderers, and half of his female descendants ended up as prostitutes. See, the five-generation rule unfortunately works both ways. And now, I hope you know that people are absolutely, definitely more than a product of their parents. It's simply not that easy. There are cases, even in the loving homes of Edwards, that people turned out as troubled adults, and there are plenty of people in Max Jukes' legacy and people like him who overcome their generational obstacles and leave a positive and lasting legacy. But as a general principle, how you live and how much you give greatly impacts the next generation and those beyond it. And it goes way beyond family. So today, think about the legacy and how much you give. Because when I hear the stories of Edwards and Jukes, all that comes to mind is, how can I possibly give as much as I have? Because I don't think I have as much as Jonathan Edwards to give. I just have what I have. But God would say that that's enough. With him, that's enough. And if I can give all of what I possibly have, then only God can tell what it will do. So how do we be people that can give everything possible away? I think God's word tells us in 1 Timothy that it starts with how we see what we own. How we see what we own. And in 1 Timothy, there are, there are four convictions that I see in this chapter of people who pass on all of their faith They can do that because of four convictions. The first one centers around God's extravagant grace. I would say it like this. People who pass on all of their faith have given up owning their lives. Think about what we just sang and what we just prayed. That people who can pass on all of their faith, first, they've given up owning all of their lives because they've been convinced of God's extravagant grace. Hey, you might not buy that, and that's okay. I'm here to kind of prove my point. So 1 Timothy 6, the first five verses says that all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and on his teachings. If the masters are believers, that's no excuse to to not show them respect or to be disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teachings, but these teachings are the wholesome teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy, division, slander, evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Now, I believe what Paul's advocating here 
is not just for faith to make it past the first century, which it hadn't done yet. This is like 60, 65 AD, early 60s. And, and not just to make it past the first century, but to make it a faith that outlasts, that goes on and on and on, as we've seen in our history. Paul says, consider, I think this is what he's saying, consider the amount of hours you spend in a day and the amount of years you spend in your adult life in one particular place. Work. For most of us, the majority of our adult hour of our adult years are spent working. And the majority of our hours are spent working. And what do we do with that place? How do we see it? Is it a place where we're the owner? Is it a place where I go there just to make money? Or as Paul says, is it a place that we need to make sure that the name of God is not shamed? See, when you're on the clock of your work, which I know is different in our changing society, like so many of us can work from home or we can... Uh, we can work through the internet, we can, we, our schedules and with our smartphones, we can be always on, so it's a little bit hard to make the full transition, but if you imagine being on the clock, if you have a believing boss, do you think it's okay, oh, I don't know, to say, like, oh, I need to take a half-hour bathroom break, but don't worry, I got to read three or four chapters of John. It was awesome, and I'm sure my boss would be okay with it because he's a Christian. I don't think that would honor the name of Jesus. If you want to read three or four chapters of John in the John, then, then do it in your unpaid lunch break. I'm sure that's great. Don't invite your boss because that'd be weird to go in the bathroom together, but go to a picnic, go to a park and do that. And, and probably you could even invite that person. But when you're on the clock, you should work as to Colossians 3 says, work unto the Lord as unto men, not working for people, but working for God and work diligently so that the name of Christ may be honored. That's what I think Paul's getting at when he says this. I mean, what does it say to an unbelieving, broken world if you're a believer and you are slandering or disrespecting or even gossiping about your boss who's also a believer? And I'm speaking to myself when I say that. I'm looking back at the conversations that I've had in the world, but we need to see our workplace is not just a place where we make money, but where we can appropriately pass on the faith and where we can be all about honorable service. We can say, how do I serve God and serve this person who also serves God and see how the kingdom could be built in this way? And believers who can do this, which starts, I believe, with submitting to God will be able to submit to another believer. Now, submit is one of those huge misrepresented words. It's one of the most misunderstood words from the scriptures. But I think it starts to get at it when we look at the slave-master concept. Now, the reason why I think we can talk about the slave-master concept even in our day is because the slavery that Paul was experiencing in first century Rome is way, is completely different than the slavery of the 18th and 19th century of the American African slave trade. It had almost nothing to do with race. In fact, I don't think it had anything to do with race. Also, 50 or 60 people, 50 or 60 million people were slaves in first century Rome. Over 50% of them were freed by the time they were 30. Additionally, while a slave did remain part 
um, well, a slave did remain property of his master or her master, they could own property, they could actually own other slaves, they could make investments, they could save money, they could buy their freedom. And it had nothing to do with status. Slaves could be landowners, they could be government officials, they could be businessmen and women, and they could be servants. So it was not restricted to that. And finally, even though I would say that buying and selling people is clearly not a part of the Christian faith, there are many people of faith that voluntarily sold themselves into slavery because of the economic stability it provided. So kind of think about it like this. So I meet a lot of people that would love to be their own boss. They would love to set their own hours. They would like to bring home the big bucks. They would like to work in and have that flexibility. But when they start to think about all of the ways that what being the boss would mean, like I have to carry all the burdens. I can't ever shut it off. It's always open in my mind. I've got to make the tough decisions. I've got to manage the employees. I've got to sign off on the profits, the potential assets, the assets, the products. Most people say, you know what? No thanks. That's, that's a lot of work. That is a huge burden. So I'm going to contribute in my way as an employee. I'm going to enjoy a few friends and enjoy a steady paycheck. And I think God says that's okay. But do you bring it under his lordship? Do you bring it and submit it to him as not something you own, but something you offer? I think people can do that because of God's extravagance, because they've realized just what it means to be bought by Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4, I think, through 7, says it amazingly well. It says, because of God's great love for us, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin and transgressions. And it's by grace that we've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus when people realize just what it means to be bought by Jesus, when people realize that, that God humiliated himself, it's what God humbled himself taking the very form of a human and being made a servant and treated like one to save us. We start to say, I can be a servant. I can bring honor to my boss especially the one that's a Christian. I can serve humbly. I can serve honorably. Yes, I can take time off, but I can be a testimony in my workplace. That's people who can pass on all of their faith. They start by being convinced of God's unconditional grace. I am owned by Jesus. My life is no longer my own. I can submit to him so I can submit to someone else. Which really brings us to the second conviction, this idea of God's general ownership. I think people who pass on all of their faith have given up owning more stuff because of God's general ownership. What I mean by God's general ownership is that really he owns it all. I get it from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. 
which says, true godliness with contentment is itself great gain. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. I don't know two concepts that could be harder to accept for American Christians as submission (laughs) and contentment. But clearly, I think this chapter is pointing to this idea of contentment, which means to be satisfied. Contentment, when we're not satisfied, we think about that thing that isn't satisfying us. We talk about that thing that isn't satisfying us. We crave that thing that isn't satisfying us. And when we don't have enough of something or when we want something that we can't have, we do the same thing. We think about it. We talk about it. We crave it. I would say we even pursue it. We try to reach out and grasp for it. This, this idea of love of money or craving money is this word in the, in the scriptures called desire. And desire isn't just this feeling. Desire is this longing, this craving to reach out one's self and grasp something. Has anyone ever heard of that phrase before in the scriptures that, that someone would reach out and take something that doesn't belong to them? Genesis, exactly. And there's all these trees, Adam and Eve, there's all these trees, but this one, don't reach out and grasp that thing. That's the root. That's what it says. And and I love what the late Robert Horton said. He said the greatest lesson that he heard from life was that people who set their minds and their hearts on money are equally disappointed whether they get it or not. People who set their hearts and their minds on money are equally disappointed whether they get it or whether they don't. And, and this one's kind of a little quip, but I think it was good. Money will buy you a fine dog, but only love will make it wag its tail. I mean, if there's not more unconditional love than a puppy, <laughs> I don't know what is, but God's is definitely unconditional So this idea of God's general ownership is really truly that God owns it all and we can't take it with us. Now the pharaohs of Egypt are perfect examples. They would have tombs the size of this room and they would put all of their gold and all of their stuff in it because they thought they could take it with them to the afterlife. It simply isn't true. So what can we pass on? The more we hold on to, the less we can give away. If we hold on to our lives, we can't see our lives as as honorable service to the Lord. If we hold on to our stuff, we can't pass that on. We can't let that be not only something that we enjoy, but something that others get to enjoy too. And people who pass on all of their faith have been convinced that God owns it all. That we get to share in it, that we get to participate. And if, if money is that thing that we hold on to, It's like we're saying, God, I love you. God, I worship you. 
God, I come and be with the people seeking to grow in you, seeking to learn from you. I give you my worries. I give you my concerns. I give you my life, except I just don't trust you with this part of my life, with my finances. You know, if I could just manage that myself, you know, you can take care of all the other stuff. And if God is the owner and he's the wisest, most powerful being in the universe, he might be a good financial advisor. So, if we look at the example of God's generosity, we see that he gives his first and his best, his son. That in the beginning of time, there was Father, Son, and Spirit. God didn't need anything, and yet he created us so that we could be in relationship with him. Not out of some need that he had, but purely out of his love. He is the most generous God, and when we're generous, we're being like God. It's not something that super professional people do or super spiritual people do. It's just something that people who love Jesus do. So how do you practice contentment? Sometimes I do it by seeing something that I want and not buying it right away. I give myself 30 days. If it's something I really want, then I definitely give myself 30 days. And if it's on sale, then I pray that it would be on sale again. Yes, that's one of my prayers. It's one of the ways I practice contentment. Another way I practice contentment is I automate my giving. So uh, a couple days after my paycheck goes in, it goes right through my checking account, right into the restoration thing, and it's set up, and it automates. And in one respect, it's bad because I don't have to think about it. And my kids don't get to see that. But in another respect, it's great because I always know that it comes out first. And when I've tithed first, I've always had enough. Not always for my wants, but I've always had enough for my needs. And that is something that we have gotten to talk about as a family. And it has become a part of my conversations with people who are young in the faith. And it is something that, again, makes something, it is something that I can pass on it, because it's not excluded, it's included. So people who pass on all of their faith give up owning more stuff. Third is this conviction about God's economy. People who pass on all their faith have given up dead religion, is what I'm trying to call it, because they're convinced of God's economy. When I talk about God's economy, I'm talking about this idea that the size of your sacrifice is linked to the size of your devotion. Okay, again, you might want to think about it with me, but it's from 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, where, where Paul says, but you, Timothy, you are a man of God. You are a person of God. So run from all these things and pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life which God has called you to in which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you obey this command without wavering so that no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus comes. See, sometimes when we see this thing that we want, when we want to reach out and grasp it, it's not enough to say no. If you've ever 
babysat or parented young children, you know that that isn't super effective. No, just don't do that. Oftentimes, distracting them with something else is really the way to go. Well, in a very similar way, God is saying, Paul is saying to Timothy, you know, don't do this, do this. Run from those things and pursue these things. But that idea of God's economy, of our sacrifice being linked to our devotion, is think about these things that he's asking Paul, Paul's asking Timothy to run after and pursue. This idea of love, faith, perseverance, and gentleness. How do you fight for those things? Because they seem kind of abstract. Well, I would say it like this. If you want to know what someone really cares about, look at where they spend their time, where they spend their energy, where they spend their money, and where they spend their dreams. That's what they care about. I was reflecting on some dear friends of ours that live about 220 miles one way away, and we see them about once a year. We, we love them. They're spiritual peers of ours. They have kids the same age as we do. We've been through years and years of life together, and every time we're together, it's a joy. They're people that just, they give joy. They're not suckers. They don't take but we only see them about once a year. Now, I was reflecting also on a very similar distance, 218 miles to be exact, one way, and that was the distance that I was from where this really cute girl was um, who was in grad school, and man, I would make that trip like once a month, not once a year, because I wanted to marry her. I was devoted to her, so it was not a sacrifice to spend four hours and ten minutes in the car if there was only one stoplight and one bathroom break. I just did it. Because the size of our sacrifice is linked to the size of our devotion. I was talking to Anne Fleming, our care leader, and she is reading this um, really wise person who says that in um, life there are things that are, are, are easy for us to do. We don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about them. They just come naturally to us. We work at them, we, um, but they're not really work. And, and if it's a school subject, we probably get an A in it without having to do much homework. These are our gimmies, like the gimme putt in golf. And we should just take them for what they are because there's other things that are hard. It doesn't matter how much time we work on them. It's like, wow, I slogged out a D plus. And and accounting was that one for me. And and these are our have-tos. And the goal isn't to spend a ton of time there in life because if we work really, really, really hard at it, we might get up to a C minus. We're just never going to be great at it, so let's just get enough skills to get by and then pray that, the other things will compensate. So those are our have-tos. But, but this person said, look for those places that might not be easy. They might not be like the, the greatest, but they're the places where this person or this child is interested. Like where you see them going online and researching, where you see them reading for fun. Um, for, for one of our children, it's science books or it's science experiments. And, and, and they're pursuing, it's not particularly their best subject, but it's something they're interested in. He said, those, those are our love twos. They're not our gimmies or our have twos, they're our love twos. We, they are something that we are passionate about. And God says, or this person says, cling on to those things. They will be something to pursue. And, and isn't it interesting that passion of devotion 
is linked to the passion of the Christ, meaning the suffering of the Christ. Because the size of your sacrifice is linked to the size of your devotion. And those are the things that you'll talk about. Those are the things that you'll pass on to. And those are the things that people will see. And then lastly, this fourth conviction is about God's eternal goodness. People who pass on all of their faith have given up trusting in themselves for today because they've been convinced of God's eternal good for tomorrow. It comes from 6, verse 15. For at just the right time, Paul says to Timothy, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No eye, no human eye has ever seen him and nor ever will. All power, honor to him forever. Amen. And I think absolutely linked to that is teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable, but teach them to instead trust in God who gives richly for our enjoyment. It's not that we can't have stuff. Tell them to use their money to do good, that they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need and always be ready to share with others. By doing this, they will store up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they can experience true life, real life, eternal life, everlasting life. I think the next generation of faith, whether they're your kids or you don't have kids, the next generation of faith might believe this if we believed it. If we set out not to deny ourselves of things, not to live as people who try to have as little as possible, but people who put everything under God, who give, have given themselves to God, have given their stuff to him, have given their time to him, have given their work to him, and have trusted in God for their future because he's eternally good. If that came through in our conversations, if that came through in our parenting, that came through in our mentoring, I believe that people would not cling to money as their security or their possessions as their thing that brought them joy. I think the outlasting legacy that we would leave our kids or that we would leave people that are young in their faith or that we're mentoring in our faith would would look very similar to the Jonathan Edwards legacy. Because we have said our life is not our own. And if you're thinking about I haven't done that very well. Hear the words of this picture that Paul gives Timothy. That the almighty God, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who can never die, the one who lives in light so brilliant that we can't even see him, that 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 is the one that has all power and all glory and honor. And that person is the one who wants to work not just in your life, but through your life. So regardless of how you've worked before this point, may you see God's light and his power work through you so that people might be able to pass on and live not just your faith, but their own faith that could be passed on to someone else that could be passed on to someone else. It's like two little girls who were playing with plastic pearls of their grandmothers. And they would go up and their grandma had a a 
a box, a big chest, and she would open it, and they would, they would go in, and they would take out these outfits, they would put on these shoes, and they would, they would love to play in this room, and every time they got to the end of their play session, they would be like, oh, Grandma, can we take these home? Can we please take these home? And oftentimes, she might let them take the plastic pearls home, but so- somehow they would get lost, or they wouldn't come back, and so she started to say no to taking the plastic pearls so that they could play with them, and they looked forward to playing with these plastic pearls every time they came over to grandma's and grandma was getting very very old and she knew that there the next time they came she might have passed away and so when the girls came and asked again they'd gotten a little older they'd been doing this for years they're like grandma can we take these plastic pearls and she said well girls you know if you would give me those pearls i would like to give you something else that you could take home she pulls open this chest and she's got these beautiful jewels, these beautiful pearl necklaces worth more than they, the girls even understood and said, would you give me those so that I can give you these and you can have these as long as you live and you can pass those on to girls that you have and on grandkids that want to play with yours. Friends, that is what God asks us. To take the plastic pearls of our life and give them to the one who can give us everlasting pearls beyond our wildest dreams. God, we have no idea what God wants to do with our life. And if we saw it all, we'd probably be overwhelmed. So see it as a journey that we give him more and more so that we can be people who pass on all of our faith. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this picture, God, of this everlasting life, this picture of a legacy that doesn't just come from our good desires, our good decisions, or things we've been convinced of, even though those are great. They come from the one who, who has all glory and honor. They come from the risen Jesus who lives with you, God, in a light so bright that no human can see it. But because of Christ, we can boldly approach your throne of grace who helps us in our time of need. Holy Spirit, I pray that over all this service as we close, that you would speak to us about this picture of our lives and how we can give all of it away for your honor, glory, and good. Amen. May you rise up as people who see yourselves first as God's dearly loved children, people that he would look down on and smile at because he does, people who go in the generosity of their God who give humble service to him and who pass on their faith simply because it's who they are. Go in the power, love, and grace of God. And if there's anything that you want to pray for, ask the Holy Spirit to give you power, goodness, or guidance on, we invite you to the back. Otherwise, make a new friend and have a great day.